Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Today's theme is vile bodies. The body, especially the female body, has been the object of fascination and desire throughout the pages of literature. But what about the intimate bits that make us squirm? The pungent underarms, the abject anuses. Delicious. I was quite proud of that one when I wrote the copy. <laughs> Anyway, we'll be talking about literature's uncomfortable relationship with the body from Philoctetes' festering foot to James Joyce's filthy letters to his wife to the vagina monologues. That you just did some excellent alliterating there. It's kind of like writing 101. Yeah, it it is. But go on. I I enjoyed it (laughs) greatly. Um, Yes, we are indeed talking about vile bodies, and we're incredibly excited about our guest today, um, who is writer, comedian, and actor Sarah Pascoe. As a stand-up comedian, you've probably seen her um, as she starred on Live at the Apollo, QI, Nevermind the Buzzcocks, Room 101, and 8 Out of 10 Cats. Um, She's a regular contributor on two series of Stand Up for the Week. And her first book, Animal, is an illuminating and hilarious tour of the female body that isn't afraid to tackle topics like abortion, pubic hair, and consent. Gnarly. Yeah, totally gnarly. And she just killed it on Graham Norton as well. Yeah, totally killed it. So in addition to interviewing Sarah, we'll be talking more generally about the theme, Vile Bodies, and recommending books. So come along with us for our most intimate show yet. That's quite a promise, Carrie. Here's our interview with Sarah Pascoe. We'll let you decide for yourselves. Sarah Pascoe, welcome to Literary Fiction. Thanks so much for being on. Thank you for having me. I'm going to start by reading a little bit from the introduction of my book. Great. This section is called, Are You a Woman? When I do my job, I'm referred to as a female comedian. With most occupations, being a doctor or teacher or chef or whatever, you're defined by the type of work that you do. But my job title also includes my gender. I don't do it any differently to the non-females. I stand there speaking words, sometimes walking from side to side or throwing a hand in the air. My boobs don't get in the way or make me fall off the stage or anything. Yet female preempts my comedian like a disclaimer I don't hate this and I'm not angry but it's made me notice gender more than I would have otherwise lots of jobs have feminized titles waitress or mermaid there are women who work under a male title fireman or postman a lazy catch-all that maybe they get annoyed about sometimes I'm called a comedienne which I like because it makes me sound French and cooked (laughs) The thing that's odd about people noticing or commenting or presuming as to my gender is that they do notice and comment and presume. I never told anyone. I didn't ring up for my first gig and announce, Hello there, I'm a woman. Could I possibly have five minutes of your stand-up comedy next Tuesday? I was 26 when I started doing gigs and I'd been female all of my life. I'd been dimly aware of that from pregnancy scares and the difficulty of urinating standing up, but it had never been commented upon when I entered a room. I'd always identified as a person, human being, ordinary. But when I began to perform at stand-up nights, bookers would say, oh, it's always nice to have a woman on. They might warn the audience. The next act is a woman, so they wouldn't be shocked and topple off their chairs. People might wait afterwards to tell me that I was good for a girl or that they usually hated female comedians. Or they would give me helpful advice like, you shouldn't talk so much about lady stuff. No one was cruel or nasty. No one explicitly told me, this is a man's job, you are not welcome. But I was baffled. Why did my being a woman seem so noticeable to everyone else? Why was it the first thing that they saw? When I became more successful, after a few years on the circuit, I would do interviews for radio stations or local papers. They would ask me, what's it like being a female comedian? And I never knew how to answer. Did they want logistics? I travel to shows on a train. I, work, work, I write words down on a pad. It's such a male industry, they might helpfully clarify. What's it like to be a woman? When I really think about it, I have no idea what it's like to be a woman. I've no experience of gender or species apart from my own. I've nothing to compare it to. I cannot fathom anything other than being inside my mind and body. That question is asking me to extend my subjective experience to all women, to speak universally and comparatively of a gendered condition. And that's an existential ask for someone promoting a Wednesday night chuckle fest above a pub in Norwich. Whenever someone wants a gender comparison, I remember the Greek myth about Tiresias. He was a man, 
and then he got turned female for seven years after hitting some snakes. And because he had experienced shagging as both sexes, Zeus asked him whether men got more pleasure from sex or did women enjoy it more. Tiresias said women got ten times as much pleasure as men. But, of course, this is myth, not science. You can't compare the genders in any quantifiable way. You just can't. We can't understand the world from anyone's perspective but our own. Great. Thank you so much. I love that you started out by talking about how people always call you a female comedian. Yeah. Which is insane, isn't it, it is, when you think about it? It's so weird because it's a job that where gender should be completely irrelevant. It just, it, out of all of the professions that should be equally weighted, it's like you don't have to be strong. Because like, there are some things we go, oh, I see, men have testosterone, they have stronger muscles usually, they're usually bigger. If I was like, oh, a shelf stacker in Tesco, she'd go, oh, being a man would be a real advantage there because you could get higher. Um, so I can see what gender stereotypes would sometimes be relevant, but it doesn't seem like it would be with comedy. So it is odd. So when you set out to write this, mm. did you ever think, I wish I wasn't writing about something female Oh. considering you get stereotypes so often? or No, I think it's all kind of consolidated. I think in an odd way, when I think back to myself in my mid-twenties, I was then much pricklier and more defensive. Um, I then would have said really idiotic things about how maybe we don't need feminism anymore. <laughs> I maybe would have said, I, definitely when I started stand-up, I had like this inner monologue of like, don't fall into the trap of doing what like those women who are bad do, like talking about women's stuff, make sure that everyone can. And um, I would kind of police myself. So like to talk about universal things in a universal way. And then I realized what I was responding to and how that in itself was wrong. That stand up is so authored that you're allowed to talk about something that's so subjective and so specific and your gender might affect that or not, but that that's allowed. One of, yeah, yeah, and one of the things I love about the book is it's a, partly a story of, you know, your desire to understand things that have yeah. always been baffling to not just yes. you, do you know what I mean, to yeah. all of us. And that's, I think, one of the things that's the most kind of accessible about it because we can all identify with that. Yeah. And we can all identify with having some really crazy ideas about things when we're young women and then you grow a bit older. Yes, and I imagine we'll also look back on this stage. Like, um, I imagine that I will start my menopause and then be like, oh, I was an idiot in my 30s. <laughs> like everything, I wrote a whole book about it. I wish I hadn't put it all down. <laughs> I, and I think that um, partly that's part of self-forgiveness is being okay with that, that you learn more information. And it's a sign of, uh, I think, being an evolved person, that you can be flexible and go, oh, I was wrong. I didn't have the same information. I was reading recently about memory and um, I'm kind of obsessed with this idea. It's called retranscription. And it's when you feel differently about something you look back on that you did at the time. And for me, that's there's so many things that happened when I was a teenager that now I'm 34 and teenage girls seem so vulnerable and it's such a formative stage. And I'm, I don't have kids, so I have all these maternal feelings against t to girls that I'm not related to <laughs> who do not want me, <laughs> like hugging them on the tube. Um, but And I think, isn't that interesting that a bit more experience in life and suddenly it means an entirely different thing. Yeah. And you have a completely different sense of chronology, don't yeah. you? Like when you're a teenager, everything is so right now. Yeah. I'm still a bit like that, I have to yes. admit. Yeah, <laughs> drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I yeah. still have teenage moments. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the, the book itself, which okay. is called Animal. Um, and it is subtitled An Autobiography of a Female Body. Yeah. Can you explain what you meant by that and what what you wanted to do with this particular topic. I wanted to keep bringing things back to the body. So um, although that there's there's autobiography in the book and there's also social commentary and cultural commentary and sometimes almost like little stand-up routines about certain things, I wanted to keep bringing it back to the physiology and the history of the... Well, the human body in general obviously has evolved like every other animal, but I wanted to just look at female evolution and the function of our body and how that might affect behaviours that sometimes I feel like I was trying to deal with in a very neck up way. Like, oh, I feel fat because of magazines. And so then to read about evolution and the importance of fat and, I guess, um, sexual signifiers and sexual choice in mating. And I started thinking, oh, I feel fat because how my body looks is important to me and I now exist in a world with mirrors and I'm more aware and so just thinking about things in a I guess a deeper more historical context but as a way of kind of self self-soothing and also then to realize that if you got rid of magazines women wouldn't suddenly all be really confident all of a sudden yeah one of the things that 
I suppose surprised me the most, and I don't mean this in a negative way, okay. was was how much science was in the book and, yeah. and how much obvious research that you yes. you did for it. So was that always something that you planned to do, or how did it I, arise? That I, I that think was it, it arose out of two two strands. Now, one of them is really positive, which is that when you read a really great book, it usually leads you to 10 more books, as we all know from our to-read piles, which are just getting just out of control. Um, because I would read a book and then I'd look at its bibliography and I would go, right, fantastic, there's a book that's even more specific about the clitoris or the orgasm. Or, and Is there um, a specific book about the clitoris? No. That <laughs> Actually, that's about it. But there are books where you'd go like, oh, a, a German man has written this, I wonder if I can get that in translation. Or And, and, um, and then sometimes uh, I mean, the internet's so... I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you've noticed the internet's fantastic, guys. <laughs> There's so much on there. Um, so, but now what you can do is read a bibliography and go, oh, I wonder if that person ever published a paper. Or I wonder, but they kept quoting this. I wonder how many people they actually studied. So quite often it was a splintering out. But the other side of it was actually from insecurity. Now, I probably could have written a book after two months' research and it could have been a lot more opinion. But I kept thinking, you're not a scientist. You haven't done any studies. A lot of the time, I don't have a very clear belief. Like, it's definitely this. I just know it. So I was trying to read more science so I could give a few options to go, I don't have the answers because I'm not a scientist. But here's five theories that are equally interesting to think about. Were you thinking of a particular reader when you were writing it? Like, is there one, is there a, yeah. a, like a demographic that you wanted to reach? The, the one, I didn't want to have a particular demographic. I think quite often, especially I, I was thinking that the women who would enjoy this book the most are probably my age. And, and but, um, but oddly, since it's come out, I've had much more passionate responses from men which is really interesting because I think it lets men into something that's quite secretive or mysterious that they don't understand. So that's been really great. The one thing I knew in my mind was that I wanted it to be comprehensible to a 14 or 15 year old. And so even with all the science, I wanted to make sure that you wouldn't have to know any of the words. Everything was explained and trying to explain it in a fun way so it doesn't feel patronising. Like, back to the beginning, legs are, <laughs> legs are what you put your trousers on. <laughs> um, but, but trying to make sure that if a teenager was bought it by a parent or found it in their school library or was looking for more sex education or just something, mm -hmm. they wouldn't go, oh, this is too complicated. Yeah, so that was my I, idea. I thought, I think you nailed it with that. Oh, thank you. And I love the way that it descends into sort of teacher, like the classroom yes. that keeps coming back up. Yeah. It makes it, it's a really nice touch to make it super accessible for people. Yeah, but also it allowed me to ask stupid questions of the stuff that I would have asked if I was reading it. And then, yeah, and tr trying to do that so the reader wouldn't go, like, you've just glossed over this, you've just contradicted yourself. Because I was reading other books going, you've just said two things. And you haven't acknowledged that those things, if they coexist, that's very tricky. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd, I really wish I'd had a book like this around when I was that age. Because I, I feel like a lot of teenagers are given a book about what's happening. I had What's Happening to My Body book for girls. Yes, Maybe yeah. I'm giving too um, much away. I just was given Jermaine Greer. Which yeah. Was yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got Jermaine Greer as well. But, but um, I, I stole it. <laughs> I wasn't given it. But I yeah. was thinking about, I don't know if you've read um, Girls and Sex, that new book by Peggy Orenstein that's just come out oh, or if you've no, heard about it. I, no. I actually haven't read it either. Oh, yeah. But I was listening to um, an interview with her the other day and she was saying she's interviewed all of these teenage girls about sex yeah. and they're very oh, wow. they're au fait with yes. everything. Yeah. But what they aren't really talking about is their own pleasure. And yes. I think that's yeah. something you've brought up here and I wonder if you well, that's it. I think, that. again, with, with the internet and the way that information now passes, I don't think young people are ever going to struggle for technical knowledge of what goes in where, how it goes in. I think they're going to know the names for all kinds of sex toys and underwear shops. I think the other side of it of part of a, uh, my journey as be being a woman was realizing that you were allowed to be happy <laughs> and that's an outs in and outside of the bedroom <laughs> so that, and that, God, I even stumble saying it like <laughs> oh, oh god <laughs> it's okay not it's okay not to hate ourselves guys <laughs> yeah um it's it's and that's such a huge thing in itself so the idea that we we um, I think the teenage girls are so opinionated. They know their own minds. They're inspiring for that. They don't compromise in a way that I think I'm much more flexible now than I was when I was 16. But that other side of it, there was this like real knotted cord center, which is you know how to please other people, but pleasing yourself is a, a slower process. So I think if along with all of that confidence we want for young people and all the brilliant things we're expecting them to do for the world, if they could also make sure that like being, being sexually satisfied is different to being sexy and making that really clear and that being part of the discussion. Yes. Yes. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Big yeses. Yeah. Um, and also the thing is, I wanted to write a book because I, my mum always told me loads and loads of stuff about sex. And I found that really uncomfortable and really embarrassing and I didn't like it. And I thought if I could have got that information from someone else, I think I'd have listened a lot more. If it wasn't my mum going, make sure a man goes down on you. If it was someone else going like, oh, the reason that man does that. It's like, just, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Totally. That's amazing that your mom said that to you. Yeah. She comes off. I oh. I have to say, I love your mother Thank after you. reading this book. I, I really had to... I really wanted to, if I was going to use so much personal information, it's obviously about her life as well. I wanted to make sure that she came across as a hero and she is a hero. But at the time, if, again, if you'd asked me in early 20, I thought my mum had ruined my sex life because she was always like, you have to masturbate. You have to have, you have to make sure men, tell me what oral sex was when I was my, like 12 years old. And then, so like, obviously I did neither of those things <laughs> because they reminded me of my mother. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> On the subject of um, women hating ourselves, yes, um, I thought that the the section where you talk about disordered eating and yeah. stuff is something that is again going to be a universal for so many women, which yes. is in itself yes. devastating. Yeah, um, and w what you describe as your internal enemy, um, and yeah, learning more about fat—that was all news to me. The stuff about fat and yeah. that, that was fascinating. But I wanted to ask more than that: like, how do you think we can change the landscape? for women and their body, their relationships with their bodies so that they can have that integration earlier, you know? I think so, so much of it is language and linguistic and sometimes it feels like, oh, that's a stupid thing. Why do we change these words? I think because it's so universal, we all accept how our friends talk about their bodies or behave about their bodies. And, I, and it has to start in what they call like critical stages. So uh, you become like aware of yourself when you're kind of like three, four, five years old. From there onwards, when, when we are praising female children, it needs to not be what they look like. And it's very easy to say that I'm not a parent. I've got two nieces. And I now, ha having got nieces, know that all you want to do is tell them they're beautiful because they are all day long. I think we have to really keep bringing ourselves up on trying not to make them in any way aware of what they're eating apart from that it's almost spiritual and holistic and you eat something it gives you energy and then you have a fun life and then always like that was so kind of you that was so brave of you that was so interesting what you just asked me there it's all of those kind of things so that it's not like you can suddenly wipe out and I think that's what I mean about it being an evolved thing women are always going to be slightly more aware of how people respond to them in terms of a tribal way like a man might be very much slightly more responsive whether he's the boss and he's the alpha uh, some people hate hate this kind of thing uh but i do think women are going to be slightly more aware of when they're looking good when their hair is shiny when t heads are turning but it should be more balanced with all of our other skills and making that making us feel really important and powerful and and necessary to the people around us and hopefully that that will I mean, this is a very optimistic thing to say, yeah. but I hope it's changing already because there are so many more women yes. in prominent positions in the public yes. eye, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you kind of, when, I mean, when I was like a little girl in the 80s, there really weren't that many yeah. strong women around, you know. And the women who were there had to fight so hard to get it yeah. and then they had to represent all women. That's almost what's unfair, is that when you have so few female politicians there's almost too much pressure on their gender as well as everything else. And that's not fair. You should be able to be a really shit woman <laughs> and that's fine. A really rubbish idiot woman. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I thought you brought out really well was uh, in all of these male scientists who have really contributed to these ideas about women, it's not just society's Whoa. view. Well, every part of the vagina and reproductive organs, which is named after anyone is named after a man. Like that is fallopian is ma is male. All of the um, the G spot um, is Graftenberg. Everything, everything that's named after the person who discovered it is a man. That what? Like, honestly, and I and actually I cut it. I wanted to do a thing where I renamed <laughs> everything after women, but then the reason I cut it was like they might be like, what? <laughs> You're just calling fannies after me. What was that's your not name? the homage I intended it to be. What was your name for the vagina? Oh, I didn't. I, th I don't think I named the vagina because that's not named after a person, is it? Um, oh, the vulva. Yeah. Oh, no. the vulva's not a person. Oh, it's a science word. <laughs> yeah, it's a science word. Yeah, but I, but I did have that thing. I think Laura Bates <laughs> has just science word. <laughs> but um, Laura Bates has written about it in her book as well. That mm. whole we are now quite comfortable culturally calling our genitals the vagina rather than the vulva, and I think the vulva is a much nicer word. I'm with you mm. totally. Yes. I, vulva I is completely a disagree. You disagree. My yeah, my vulva makes me feel very when um funny. I, I I say briefly in the book about how. 
because I'd been thinking vulva, vulva. Oh, it's such a oh, what a soft word. What a velvety word. It's such a beautiful word. And then I and then I said to John, my boyfriend, like I think actually it would be a beautiful name for a girl. And he was nearly sick. <laughs> like like he had the reaction you had, but it was like uh, uh, <laughs> just the sound of that word to him was the exact opposite of what it sounds like to me. Like just oh no, I actually think about it, John. <laughs> like it would be a beautiful name. <laughs> I love that. Maybe my a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The great vulva. vulva. Yeah. The great yeah. vulva. The mm. green vulva, no. No. No, not yeah. I didn't say green. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, my favorite scientist was um somebody you talk about called Desmond Morris. Oh, who yes. thought that women don't like the oh. look of their pubic hair because it looks okay. like spiders. So I felt cruel to Desmond Morris because he is probably right at the beginning of this he he writes such brilliant, easy to read books. So the human zoo, which is all about human beings behaving in town in cities like they monkeys doing captivity and um, he wrote um, a book just about men bodies and a book about women's bodies but it's just that sometimes the anthropology it doesn't acknowledge it's a soft science so he'll say a thing like so he was yeah he was the kind of person who would say women have breasts to emulate buttocks because men find buttocks sexy full stop end of discussion (laughs) and um, and and so it's kind of cruel because anthropology and has moved a long way since the 70s he also was very homophobic but then just in that way where sometimes people were in the olden days and you realize how much things have changed and you wouldn't get that kind of thing published now um yeah so it's odd the pubic hair spiders thing and i think about it all the time (laughs) that just some man went oh i see she's screaming at that and she shaves them off makes perfect sense (laughs) (laughs) i know with that and one of the other things i mean when you um reference Darwin's nice soft future wife and oh, yes. female chit chat yeah. and you know it's better than a dog yeah, yeah unreal um and you know I found my blood boiling and you're very honest in the book about the yeah. stuff that you encountered that made you like yes. feel lots yeah. of rage good old feminist anger it's a very powerful force yes, as long as it has somewhere to go yeah <laughs> well, I think, exactly. I feel like sometimes I just um I just ruin nights out <laughs> Like I just read this blog. Do you know what's, yeah, yeah, no, what's relate, happening in the Congo? I relate to that so much. Yes, One yeah. of my exes actually said to me, "Will you stop talking about rape, please?" Yeah. And well, when I was writing the last third of the book, which I wrote first, which is called Consent. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I and so the trouble is, I I wanted well, I wanted to write without the horror stories because there are so many, and so I was reading legal books so I was reading about the cases where the rapist was not convicted even though there's so much evidence but because of behaviors of the victim and I was yeah hysterical all the time it was just too much to take in there's nothing you can do about it it's just, and it's just unfairness it isn't even just that the attack you can't help but really emoting about it's then that they're so let down by the people that should be protecting them and yet my boyfriend was like I need to go for a walk now mm. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's yeah I wanted to ask you about that because I thought it was interesting that the last third of the book really yes. is is about rape. Well, I originally intended to have ten sections, and that was going to be one section, and this, um, and it was almost going to be not not an afterword, but uh, also part of because um, I did an Edinburgh show, and, and a male comedian, he was right to point this out. He says when you talk about sperm competition in your show, you never acknowledge that not all sex in our evolution would have been consensual. And I thought, what a good point. Of course. Of course, we can't just presume that everything was lust. We were, were tribal like other apes and there would have been really horrific things t- to us looking back. And oh, okay, I've got definitely right about it. Interesting. And then I started trying to work out what to write and I realised, oh, I care about this far too much and it's so important. And, and then I suddenly thought, well, also the difference between me writing my book and then maybe just someone who is a scientist writing a book or someone who, who's a writer writing a book is I, I have been on stuff, like I've been on QI and never mind the buzzcocks and if I don't write about consent at all I guess that's an easier option I can write a funnier book but then I'm really wasting an opportunity that I've got that someone will pick this up and not realize ha, 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 that's a third of the book <laughs> it's this really really serious thing you have a great bit on on rape jokes and oh, yes can you so talk good. about that a bit well it's a kind of conversation that goes on a lot with comedians so I I would say I'm on the ultra moralistic side um, so I I never want to upset anyone and usually what happens if someone says to me I, I used to have a joke years ago about anorexics I thought it was a very pro-eating joke and then I did a gig at university and they contacted me and said oh um, we're part of the anorexia society really enjoyed your set thought it was all going great you really upset us with this it's a mental health disorder you don't know what you're talking about when you say things that are flipping like that people listen to and while it's horrible to be criticised 
You go, you're absolutely right. And if I, and when you use a word which is about you, when you're sitting in the audience and someone does that kind of thing, it, that can ruin your evening. Or, and it can make you go, I used to like you. And now that one thing makes me go, you're my enemy or you don't understand. So I just drop it. And that usually is what happens if I've upset someone. I never talk about celebrities, anything. I always think like, what if they heard? <laughs> They'd be so upset. So, uh, and, and, but other people, that's the point. And that's why you laugh is that they're shocking and they're in a grey area and they, oh, you can't say that. And then everyone laughs. But with rape, um, the more I was reading about the brain and the amygdala and how, so we remember 80% negative memories because that's how we learn. So in terms of evolution, we're supposed to, the people who don't like us, the, the things that happen that are traumatic, we remember more clearly than anything else. And then what happens with, uh, when someone's been sexually assaulted or other kinds of assault or um, violence is you remember it really, really clearly. It feels like it happens very, very slowly. And anything that is similar to that, you have exactly the same fear response. You get flashbacks and your um, heart rate will increase. And if you are having that experience in it, so if there is a word, and I know people are getting really sneering now about trigger words. Like, why would you tell us there's a trigger thing? Because they have never had a physiological reaction to something based on language. And the thing about comedy clubs is usually there are cellar rooms that are kind of dark and you're stuck beside people. And the people around you are laughing while you're having the equivalent of a panic attack or a flashback. And I just feel like if as a comic you are aware of all of that and you still think your joke is good enough that occasionally you're going to hurt someone's feelings or, or trigger this response and you go, no, I can stand by it because I'm making a very serious point about this or just it's the best joke that's ever been written. It outweighs <laughs> misery. Because actually, as we all know, it's not rape jokes that are really the problem. It's the fact that rape is not uh, convicted properly or tried properly in our countries and it still happens and boys aren't being educated in lots of instances not to rape people that's the problem but while that's still happening let's I would say let's not be flippant about it for no reason. Well also there's the argument that rape's not even really that transgressive as a subject for joking because it happens all the time and it's hideous yeah. you know it, it's not to me it's never felt like a sexy edgy place yeah. to go with comedy yeah you know it's always felt kind Obvious. of cheap yeah. actually, well, actually yeah. when you watch newer comics they tend to do it a lot more often that's I, interesting so the open mic circuit um i'll give you an example and i'll give you an example of a, a woman not a man so that the, <laughs> there's jokes that are like um don't you hate it when um a guy like leaves money at the side of the t the table after having sex and you're like thanks dad <laughs> Like it's that style of joke. So okay. when it's a bad that I just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you should go to more open mic nights. That's just an example. And I saw someone the other day who like and so the other thing is abortion, which tends to happen a lot. Where so it'll be yeah rape, abortion, and wife, woman beating, wife killing. There's certain subjects that just get a very shocked reaction from the audience. Um, and so when people are very new, they tend to go down that route, and then people tend to lose it and move away to. Because you get funnier, so you don't need to rely on certain words or shock tactics and that kind of thing. Yeah, it isn't very transgressive, but something happens. I think it comes down to it, because I'm trying to be positive. I think it's because we want the world to be a nice place that it's, we would actually like rape to be a smaller thing than it is, that it's not common, that, it's, that it is women's fantasies or some people enjoy it. I can understand why some people write it out of their, under, their narrative of the world. I can understand that. And I think joking is part of that because because it's suddenly being flippant about something like ah uh, it's okay <laughs> it's okay guys it's not as bad as you think <laughs> yeah that makes sense um, you you just said abortion oh, and yes. that is uh, that's yeah. something that you also discuss really yes. frankly yeah. in this book um, an abortion you had on your seventeenth birthday. Mm. Um, which you are unapologetic about, yes. and even in the book you say a lot of people who read drafts of this book said, "Do you really want to write about this because people are going to yeah. ask well, you about mm. it? Um, do you do you regret it? Do you, no, are you I know, I, but I, I think it's always good to have people who look out for you, so you can't turn around and go, "What? Why is that coming up in interviews? That was my secret book. <laughs> Did you, has someone <laughs> photocopied it and handed it round?" Um, I know, I, I think a little bit like how I felt about it at the time. I was so sure of my decision. But I think if I had had an abortion last year when I was 33 and well off and successful, would I have wanted to talk about that as confidently? I don't know. So that's something I wonder to myself. The, the fact that I was so young, I think a majority of people who are obviously all of us are on a spectrum of where we think uh, that, that you can have an abortion up to or whether you can or why you should or certain situations, most people would say you're a teenager your whole life ahead of you too young you made a stupid mistake you were stupid but 
Whereas if I said like, no, I just didn't want one now. <laughs> yeah, I had everything and anyone could have supported it and I would have been fine and I've got plenty of work that's very flexible. That would have been a harder call to be like, and still, it's okay. So I wonder, mm. I do wonder. You, do you think it still is okay? Yeah, no, you no, of course, no, it definitely is okay, but I think I'd have been more judged. So then I would have been maybe shyer about it, but maybe that's wrong. It probably is wrong. Well, I find it amazing that you're saying that because I feel like this book is, you're just laying it out on the table. I mean, that's yes. what's so great yeah. about it is that I felt like it was incredibly intimate and you weren't afraid to talk about yes. all of these different things. Yeah. And that's a, an element of your comedy as well. Uh, yeah, I know. and but also the benefit with a book, I mean, and, and you, you both know this as well, is that you get so many chances to rephrase it and, re, and rewrite it until it's exactly what you mean. And sometimes with stand-up, you have to start saying it before it's ready. And that's why I've never talked about abortion on stage. It's an, it's an odd thing. Again, it's something that people have a physiological reaction to. Either they have had one. And that means that word, again, it's a... You, you have little tiny bits of memory. <laughs> like you can see something when that word is said if you've had one. Or um, your partner has. Or a best friend has. Or your mum has. And so actually, again, it's that kind of word. You have to be very careful about what you're saying. And in a book, you just have that room to go, OK, this is it. I've never even said this to anyone, any person in detail. But suddenly you have this time to kind of talk to a reader about it. But... I never really thought about anyone reading it. It was more just like, exactly how was it? I think it's really yeah. important that women are, are open and honest about those experiences because it's the only way it becomes demystified, you know? Of course, but that, I can also completely understand why women don't want to. Yes. I think I am so unsecretive that I'm like, yeah, here's all my details, but I would then not want to barge into an, <laughs> the post-ward of an abort. Guys, we need to change the culture, so if you could just come outside and talk to the news, <laughs> that'd be really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. <clears throat> the other question I wanted to ask coming on from that is that in the book you say, you know, you were inspired to start doing stand-up after a breakup. And, yes. you know, it's a lot about um, an, a, like a, a journey and a journey that's that comes from or is fueled a bit by frustration and yeah. desire to understand and everything. Um, and I wonder, like, do you, because obviously now you're in, you're in a partnership with yeah. a lovely sounding dude yeah. who, yeah, wore a flasher coat and... Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, and I just wonder, do you think that being happy um, and being in love dampens your creative drive? Like, do you think it's... I think, um, I think there's a very unhealthy myth about artistry in general, which is that you have to be sad and you're, it's all right if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> I worry if there's a lot of like, of course you're a mess. Of course you didn't turn up to dinner on time. Of course you're a liar. That's your brain. Um, I feel like meeting John uh, from the from the flasher coat um, opened up a whole new area of neuroses. I don't think it was like, oh, brilliant, happy ending. <laughs> I found a boy with beautiful eyes. It's like, there's another thing to lose. <laughs> and I think, um, yeah, and I think it would be, I think if anyone was chasing creativity over happiness, that would be so dangerous. And I think, uh, I just think there are different kinds of creativity. You might write, oh, wow, a wonderful poem at the depths of your depression. And that was how you're expressing yourself. But you could be at the, the, the pinnacle of your joy and write a poem that's equally brilliant in a different way. And the, all of those altered states are then what you reflect in your work, isn't it? So I think sometimes we allow ourselves to like, no, it's fine that I do this. I'm not going to have a bath for a week because I'm an artist. <laughs> it's like, no, have a bath. <laughs> please, God, have please, a bath. Please have a bath. <laughs> Well, on that sound piece of advice, yeah. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so thank much for you. coming in today. You've been brilliant. Uh, the book is called Animal and it is out now in bookstores. So that was our interview with Sarah Pascoe, the comedian and writer, and um, inspired by her book Animals. Today's theme is vile bodies. So now Octavia and I are going to discuss vile bodies. Um, Let's talk a bit about what we mean by vile bodies first. So what what do you think of when you think of vile bodies and why did we want to link this to Sarah's book? Well, I, of course, immediately think about the Evelyn Wall text, which I love um, and loved reading as a young girl. And actually, it's a, it's a great way into the topic. Um, the title of that book um, is a literal translation of the Latin corpora vilia, which is plural of corpus vile, meaning a person or thing fit only to be the object of experimentation. Um, and in War's book, it's about how the characters are at the mercy of their author and the author is like a godlike figure who can direct things and all that stuff. Um, but also a comment on the excessive lifestyles of its characters because they were the original 
party people, bright young things, etc. But we thought of it because the thing that stands out so much about Sarah's book and the thing that we both responded to the most and loved the most is her total and utter honesty about the body. And it's, uh, it's nooks and crannies and um, nooks and crannies that society has cast as vile but that are far from being vile, they're vital instead, you know? Mm. Um, yes. Like what I did there? I like that soundbite. Lyrical? Yeah, no, I, I, well, I agree because I came up with it as well, but <laughs> I think I, d- I really did love that about the book. And I, and as a woman especially, and we'll get into the gender politics of this, um, I think you're taught to feel shame about your body um, from a very young age. And to be reading a book where somebody says, it's okay to be smelly, it's okay to have pubic hair, um, is is pretty liberating, even if you know it. To 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 deal with that in a funny and honest way is is amazing. Yeah, and one of the things that Sarah does in her book is synthesizes the evolutionary reason for things like pubic hair, and then you know has these lovely anecdotes from her life. Um, and so it really kind of compounds the fact that I mean this insane insane idea that pubic hair is uh, dirty or unhygienic, which you hear people quoting a lot. And I look at them and I'm like, what the hell? Like this idea that having hairy legs as a woman is unhygienic. I just want to say, well, do you think every single man is unhygienic? You know, no, it's insane. We're really fixating on the hair thing. I think the hair thing is still a polemic issue, which I also think is insane that we're in this day and age and that feminism has got to the state it has got to. And to be hairy or not hairy it still becomes a political act and a political statement yeah it's whether you want it to or not it's so interesting though because i think we're getting a little off of books but it it <laughs> true it's a, you in well it, i do think it relates because in a way desire is something that can and can't be controlled it can be shaped by forces around us and we can be conscious about our desire and why we desire things but i think that um that that idea that pubic hair because somebody doesn't like it they're somehow wrong is so wrapped up in so many years of cultural mores and ideas about the body and everything like that absolutely and they and they change a lot i mean to to sort of bring it back to literature i guess in a way um and just to to mention a tiny bit of critical theory because you know i have to um Julia Kristeva, who's a fr- who was a French contemporary philosopher. <gasps> no, I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> how <laughs> no, dare no, you! No. <laughs> um, who wrote a lot about this notion of abjection and the abject um, body as being a body that overflows and shows up beyond its outsides. So a body that bleeds, shits, pisses, vomits. You know, hairy also. There's these elements of abjection. But what she's really talking about is the fact that essentially the line between desire and disgust is very thin Mm. and the line between pleasure and pain is very thin and orgasmic expression is this hysterical tension you know this kind of body the the body arched in torsion and tension and it's blissful pleasure but it was also called le petit mort because it's a little death you know yeah and i think um that instantly makes me think of James Joyce's letters to his wife, oh, Nora. Oh, amazing, exactly. Which are such a marriage of the high and the low. And yeah. um, this idea of disgust and desire being twinned together um, in in pursuit of, of a similar goal. Um, I, so I copied out a passage from this, which I have to admit, I got off a BuzzFeed list called The 17 Dirtiest Excerpts from James <laughs> Joyce's Letters. <laughs> I was kind of like, oh God, what is the world coming to? But I love anyway, it's great. So, um, uh, will, you re- will you read some? Uh, yeah. Do you want me to do it? No. Do you want to do it? I do. Okay. <laughs> okay. Here we go. Um, explicit content may... Yes, if there are children in the room, we yeah. will be referring to the existence of sex, as yeah. Ira Glass would say. At every fuck I gave you, your shameless tongue came bursting out through your lips. And if I gave you a bigger, stronger fuck than usual, fat, dirty farts came spluttering out of your backside. You had an arse full of farts that night, darling, and I fucked them out of you. Big, fat fellows, long, windy ones, quick little merry cracks and a lot of tiny little naughty farties ending in a long gush from your hole. I'm sorry, I was really into it until farties. And then that was just like panties. That was was very passionately read. Thank you, Antimia. (laughs) Yeah, um, but don't you think the thing about those letters that's fascinating is, in some way, in some ways, how liberated of him and her for their sex to be so open and blah blah blah. But actually, the dynamic is not 
uh, an equal one between them, is it? No, it's, it's, it's him imposing these ideas upon her. I mean, I, I haven't read her letters back and I don't know if she wrote them, but I have a feeling she probably didn't write similar letters back to James Joyce. I, do, I know nothing actually about that. Yeah, well, we'll have to find out. Answers um, on a postcard. So, vile bodies. Let's let's talk about some vile bodies in literature. What what do we mean by vile bodies, and how has that manifested itself in in novels, especially? Well, my first thought was the Marquis de Sade, 120 Days of Sodom, which I have read cover to cover, and I it's an ordeal rather than a pleasure, but it's an incredibly important point in this discussion of kind of bodies and extremes um because you know he it's it's a it's an incredible literary ex- exploration into total and utter physical and uh spiritual and structural deprivation and degradation um and he really goes everywhere i mean he crosses every single taboo and line you could imagine incest murder rape corp- corpse raping uh violence uh, the whole thing, and it's it's kind of it becomes essentially just a list of these kind of terrible things, but it it is really fascinating to me because it still holds a place in the history of this kind of literature, um, which is just it, 120 days of Sodom. It's it's like accompanying a mind into its darkest possible crevices and corners. But the thing that's incredible about it is, and it's huge. It's a huge text. By the end of it, you're not shocked. You're not disgusted you're not anything, you become completely immune to it and kind of numb. Um, But the other thing I find interesting about that book and talking to people who've read it is whether they felt aroused or not at any point, because it it puts you in a very complicated position, Mm. you know, with in terms of desire and arousal. Um, Yeah, and um, we've been talking a lot about desire, but of course there are a lot of vile bodies in literature that um, do the opposite of bring desire. They're meant to inspire disgust. So I, I mentioned the intro Philoctetes, which is a, um, a ancient Greek play um, and, an, and an ancient Greek myth as well. But um, he is sort of the er-diseased character who is um, punished by Zeus and bitten by a snake mm-hmm. um, and develops this festering wound that means that he's in constant agony and... Um, it smells really bad as well. So he's exiled to this island and the play is actually really boring um, because it's mainly him just complaining about being injured and nobody likes him and that he's, um, as I remember, but maybe I should reread it. <laughs> might, might mean more to me now. But anyway, um, he's very much the sort of exiled um, body that that to us represents um, the the pharmacon, to, to use that term. Um, some Somebody who's in their physical appearance of decay and disease, um, society has to expel. And I think there, though, there are characters like that through the pages of literature. So I think Frankenstein is another version of mm-hmm. that in which it's it's man's image, but a sort of disgusting, bizarro version of man's image. That yeah. um, though he is a noble savage. Um, though he has only good intentions, eventually has to be destroyed um, because we can't stand the sight of him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was also thinking about a lot of Indian literature, actually, with lepers and and the caste system explored by things like A Fine Balance by mm. Rohinza Mystery, which I read when I was quite young and I found it extraordinary, but, but, but vile bodies everywhere, all through it. One of the main characters is a, um, a paraplegic cripple who uh, runs like has a skateboard that he uses his body stump on essentially and it's very brutal yeah. um, or um you know aids ar- around the aids crisis there was a lot of literature and art and plays and music produced um about this crisis of when your body fails you mm. um is that related to your soul does that say something unclean about you i'm thinking of angels in america especially which is the play by tony kirshner um which is about everything in many ways in America and but um but at its heart it's this idea of what happens when a violent pestilence visits itself on a population that has been maligned and accused of um being sinful Mm. what do you do with that when when you start developing cancer like strange sarcomas on your skin um, how do how do we reconcile the mind with the body? And I think that came up in in our corpses show as well. Yeah, definitely, lots of the same territory. I mean, I, I was thinking also of um, 
vile, not just meaning disgusting, but also meaning undesirable, like the entire literary back catalogue of someone like Irvin Welsh, who his whole kind of reason for writing is about exploring people who are kind of vile yeah. in one way or another and making you uncomfortable. And Brett Easton Ellis is another writer who does that with great effect. Yeah, and I think that there have been a lot of female writers who have been doing that as well. Um, the uncomfortableness is kind of in service of reclaiming the female body, perhaps. But I think that's what Sarah Pascoe is doing in some sense. I think the book Wetlands did that. Um, you know, maybe the vagina monologues as well. I also think Catelyn Moran's book, yeah. How to Be a Woman, um, similarly in its kind of frankness about the pubescent female body and the experience of desire and masturbation and all of that kind of stuff, which she's incredibly frank about as well. Yeah, um, I agree. Okay, let's talk about our, our favorite vile bodies, which sounds like the wrong way to describe it, doesn't <laughs> it? <laughs> but, what, but what's your favorite vile body, Octavia? My fave vile body um, is a book by uh, Georges Bataille, who's the, this um, French kind of philosopher who I've talked about before on mm. the show, who wrote, wrote a lot about eroticism, comes out of the same tradition as Sard and things, but in a much later. And he wrote this book called Le Bleu du Ciel, which is translated as um, The Blue of Noon. And it's and it's kind of, it's very short. It's hard, hard reading, but also very enjoyable for me anyway. Um, it's a short novella about depravity and violence, but it's very much connecting the vile body physically with the vile body as um, like a violent political system, basically. Um, its narrator is called Tropman, which trop in French means too much. So kind of too much man, like he's, ex he's already expo ex exploding beyond his own um, boundaries and uh and he's a dr he's drunk and he's kind of ro rolling around these cities and bars and stuff um puking pissing shitting uh nice yeah super nice um and his lover is actually called dirty um that's her her sort of nickname and she shits herself and they have sex as europe is essentially falling around them ending up with them having sex in a graveyard a half dug grave um and it, it, he's yeah, it's like he's looking at the allure of the filthy and, and the fascination with dirt and, and transgression, genuine transgression. Um, it's definitely not for everyone, though. And I uh, I did lend it to a guy I was dating once and um, he really was not into it at all. And uh, we didn't hang out again. Yeah. <laughs> you once sent me a book that made me faint on the tube. That is also true. Lobster. Yeah. yeah. There's a scene... Yeah, maybe you're into vile bodies because in that, in that <laughs> book, there's a scene when um, a lobster, a lobster, um, basically chops off a woman's clitoris with its, with its claw. I mean, it was it was trying and to she pleasure wakes her. Up in a pool of clotted blood. That was awful. <laughs> I, it's For a me. great book. It's a great book. It was a great book. Bad translation of yeah. a great book. Yes. Okay. But anyway. Um, I am going to be boring and recommend something I've already mentioned, but I just want to reiterate um, James Joyce's letters to his wife, Nora. Um, they're so dirty and they're fun to read. And um, I think anything that shows us a side of novelists that, um, that makes them more human is always interesting. And I think that's true of these letters. Like it's, it's so embarrassing in a sense um, that you just, you start to, see the the humans behind the sort of great masterworks like Ulysses and things like that but um I also love it because it's such a wonderfully pathetic uh experience which and what I mean by that is that it oscillates so well between the high and the low so one minute he's calling her his flower of the mountain the next um you know he's talking about her shitting and farting and um pressing her cunt up against like a, a glass table or something like that and it's a principle that he definitely carries over into his fiction, especially Ulysses, um, which which is really this grand experiment about how we can marry high and low together and in, into one text. Um, and also, it's an example of s I I was thinking about this show also in the context of writing about sex, like you have the bad sex awards and everything like that. And um, it's acknowledged that it's very, very hard to write about sex for a number of reasons, partially because it's both so specific and so universal, and it's really hard to find ways to capture that kind of experience. But somehow Joyce really does it in a way that doesn't necessarily turn me on, but gives me a real sense of like the specificity and excitement and sexiness of their relationship. So I, I 
I'd recommend people go for it. I guess also the letters, because they're not fiction. Yeah. You know, you yeah. get that. And then he That's, carries There's that a real pleasure. Situation. There's a real pleasure in that. Yeah. Um, and to find examples of the way that things really happened that, that make fiction come alive in, yeah. in a more exciting way. Yes. Affirmative. <laughs> This is Literary Friction. I am Carrie Plitt, and I am back here with uh, Sarah Pascoe and Octavia Bright, my co-host, to give our book recommendations. So, Octavia, do you want to start? I will start with pleasure. Um, so, a dear friend of mine was in New York recently, and she picked me up a book that she thought I would love. And when she gave it to me, it was by this writer who I do love. So, all these things came together. It's called The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, and it is mind-blowing, like phenomenal. Um, it was one of those books that kind of reaches in through your mouth and finds the things you've been saying to yourself for a really long time and says them better <laughs> and back to you. Um, and it's kind of, it's hard to describe. It's been a real sensation. It's New York Times bestseller list, all that stuff. Um, but essentially it's, it's this kind of beautiful meandering discussion on love and gender and marriage and politics and then pregnancy and hormonal injections and philosophy again. And she brings in quite a lot of um, academic references to theorists and critics, but in such a way that it's not like reading a thesis at all. It's it's kind of a it's very poetic and very honest. Um, and I read it in a day and a half. I couldn't. I literally couldn't stop. I found it so uh, life affirming. Um, so I think you should read it, everybody, um, because it's yeah. It's it, there's something incredibly radical about it as well. And she, like you, Sarah, is not embarrassed to explain how her mind has changed you know over her life and she's now in her 40s and she talks about she talks about her pregnancy and she talks about is it non-fiction it's non oh. it, this is the thing it kind of doesn't really fit a genre it's memoir it's also critical theory it's philosophy it's almost poetry but she's an author that was recommended actually by sarah perry when we had sarah on and she re recommended one of maggie's books called bluets which is of a similar vein in terms of its structure, but it's a completely different um, concept. But yeah, The Argonauts, read it. I think I'm going to be reading it for the rest of my life. I think I'm going to be going back to it forever um, right. in different stages and stuff. So that yeah. sounds amazing. Yes, I give it like more stars than I'm allowed to. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've heard so much about that book, and I think you've just tipped me over to the edge of like, the first thing I need to do when I leave it <laughs> is go and buy it. Um, the book what I was going to recommend now is uh, was nominated for the Booker Prize, so you may already have recommended it already it's called a little life i think i recommended it actually Did but I, I am yes. so interested to hear what you think okay so, so I, i'm wary of recommending it to people because it ruined a week of my life <laughs> like i amen was, to that i sister. was crushed crushed by that book i don't think and i'm not exaggerating i've ever had such a physiological sadness to something i was reading I'd heard someone else saying something like, oh, it's a bit unrelenting. I didn't know anything about it before I read it. I think I thought it was like white swans. For some reason in my head, my stepmom had read it and said that I would like it. For some reason in my head, maybe because it was a Japanese author or kind of an Eastern sounding author, actually. Um, I thought it was going to be like a family saga. And I thought it was a woman's book. And, it, and it's about four men. It's about male friendship. And the day that I finished it, I stayed up very late so I couldn't go to bed to finish it. And then I woke up in the morning and the first thing I felt was like, oh, my friend died. <laughs> like I woke up, my, my reaction was grief. I can't, I can't. And then my friend had been, who'd given me the copy actually, had been in Melbourne at the comedy festival and they had three shows where they were supposed to be doing stand-up where they just wanted to say to the audience, I'm so sorry, I can't be funny at the moment. I'm reading this book and it's too much. It's so incredible. Yeah, I it made me think about why we read fiction actually yeah. when I read that book because yeah. I was like if, if something that is not true can yes. affect me this much as much as something that's true like, so the, the emotions are real like that they're people I feel like they existed in New York I felt like if I had got on a plane to track them down I would have found them like yeah. I, I can kind of okay I, I know that road right okay and then I could I could track them down I, I cannot accept they're not real people I actually almost fainted on the tube while I was Did reading you? it too. And because there's a couple of real surprises, and the thing is, I, I'm so wary of saying anything because you should just go into that book not knowing what anything is. But there's a couple of real swooping, like. <gasps> Didn't, I did not know that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Did you feel at all manipulated? Because that was no. my only problem with it. I think that's what I. I think that's what we go to fiction for: magic to happen. 
Like you just with words changed reality. You made me empathize with people people who are different to me, people who have different lives. You made me think about everything. I didn't feel manipulated. I, and I, I was unembarrassed. I remember I got a train to my mum's house and I was just weeping as I read. And I thought, someone's going to ask me why I'm weeping. Shall I say I've just got divorced? <laughs> or shall I say it's this book? Because <laughs> I thought, what's, because I was just so openly, like, I can't stop this and I'm not going to pretend I'm not going to stop. But if someone asks, and then I, and I did think, don't recommend this to anyone. It's too, like, it's like saying to someone, hey, do you want to have a really, really negative life experience? <laughs> Here you go. I wouldn't buy it for anyone. Well, but yeah. That's kind of what Carrie said to me when she finished yeah. it. She's like, I don't think you should read this at this time in your life. Yeah, yeah. It's, it too, is, yeah. Yeah, it's huge. It's incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. And it's 700 pages and I read it in three days. And people on the like back that. say, oh, uh, unusual for a book this long. You want it, you wish it was longer. And you're like, I'll be the judge of, oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> I get it. I now, I want it to almost must be like Eleanor Ferranta. That's the first in a, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a lot of them because the people are real. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I completely agree with that recommendation, although hesitant to actually give it to anyone or yes, recommend yeah. it to anyone. But yeah. I'm glad you I'm glad you read it. I and know, I'm glad everyone you has to read it, it so we can all discuss yeah. <laughs> who cried the most. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, after that, I am going to recommend a much lighter novel, um, a sort of equally long maybe a little shorter, um, but it's called All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr, um, which came out a couple of years ago. And I'm actually listening to the audiobook, which I don't usually do, but I was moving house this weekend and I thought, what would be great for all of the packing that I need to do? It's just something that's like totally immersive, sort of in the way mm -hmm. that you were talking about, something that just takes me away somewhere. And I'm so glad that I picked this book because it is just totally absorbing it's really really fascinating and the more that I listen to it the more I get totally absorbed in it um it is set during the second world's war and it features two alternating narratives um sort of chapter by chapter we we go between the two um one is about Marie-Laure which I can't, can't pronounce yeah, yeah whatever <laughs> <laughs> a blind French girl whose father is the locksmith uh, for the Museum of Natural History in Paris. And the other is about Werner, um, a radio-obsessed German orphan. Um, and the the writing, it's, it's quite lyrical, sort of sprawling writing that's very descriptive, but it's also told in like quite short sentences and the chapters are really short and the pacing is really, really steady. So it's, you get this experience of just being inside of this world, which has some really lovely details. Um, Marie-Laure's father makes her these tiny model houses and um, uh, sort of villages and towns so that she can um, figure out how to navigate her way. And it's just, um, or there's this hotel that he's made up called the Hotel of Bees, which was built by this man who's obsessed with bees. So everything, all of the sort of um, lintels and columns and everything are covered with bees. So I don't know, it's just, I, I'm really enjoying it. Um, and I'm not as convinced by the narrator, um, Julie Teal, who sounds, she's quite stuffy and also quite bad at pronouncing. What if she's listening to this? Oh, I mean. <laughs> what if she's like, my favorite book podcast. Oh, I'll just have a listen. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, I feel really bad. I mean, she, she's great. She's really yeah. trying hard, which yeah. I, which is great. So well done, Julie. <laughs> Sting. Um, good, good, good job. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'd really recommend that you either read or listen to um, you know, I love All the Light We Cannot See. I love yeah. listening to books. Yeah, well, I know. And you always say you are. And I, I somehow can never really get into it. But for some I reason, I've got into, into it. I, I just completely zone out and can't hear it. Well, yeah. I do that too. But I found with this one, because I was really trying to listen to the first mm. couple of chapters, then all of a sudden I was immersed. Yeah. So it, maybe it takes a bit more time or something. I don't know. I think so. Yeah, I'm into it though. Okay, well, thank you so much, Sarah. So that's it for today's show. Thank you to the very funny, very wonderful guest, Sarah Pascoe, and also to Eddie Knight for production and music. Octavia, we have some um, exciting events coming up, don't we? We do. We've got some really cool things on the horizon. Um, so on the 4th of June, we're going to be talking with Neil Denny from Little Atoms um, at the Stoke Newington Literature Festival. Uh, as part of a panel talking about book podcasting uh, called The Eagles of Book Podcasting, which I think is a really clever pun. Hopefully you guys will get it.
I don't get it. Okay, don't worry about it. I'm not explaining it now. Um, and then the next thing is we're doing an event with um, Peirini Press on the 16th of June, um, which is all about this book that I'm not going to say more about right now. Watch the space, but it's going to be fabulous at Second Home. Um, and we'll have more info on our Twitter and Facebook feed. So keep checking them. Yeah, so if you're London-based, we'd love to see you there. Yeah, we'd really love to see you. And uh, Literary Friction is also available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do leave comments and interact. We love to hear from our listeners. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. <laughs>